Hi, welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. It is Friday, December 29th, and I'm Jessica Steinberg. I am speaking today with political correspondent Sam Sokol and environmental reporter Sue Sirks. Good to have you both. Good to see you both. Good morning, Jessica. Morning. Hi there. It is day 84 of the war. Egypt says it is awaiting responses on a plan to free the remaining hostages and end the war in Gaza. Meanwhile, the IDF launched widespread strikes in South Lebanon after a barrage of Hezbollah rockets in the north. Yesterday, another hostage was confirmed murdered on October 7th. Her body is held in Gaza. That is Israeli-American Judith Weinstein killed alongside her husband, Gadi Chagai, from Kibbutz near Oz. They were taking an early morning walk on that day. We will discuss today the reservists, how they are suffering financially as well as other issues relating to their service, along with the recent COP28 climate conference held in Dubai earlier this month, and a look at how this government fared environmentally as we head toward the year's end. All of that after a quick break. Do you or your clients have a commercial collection matter that's going nowhere? The Sarachuk Law Firm specializes in the most challenging collection matters, whether it is a single matter or a portfolio of cases. They are based in New York with relationships around the world. Sarachuk's proprietary databases and tried and proven methods have earned them an unmatched reputation for success in getting their clients what they're owed. They work on a contingency fee basis, so they're only compensated when they succeed. The Sarachuk Law Team strongly supports Israel. You can reach the Sarachek team at www.sarachechlawfirm.com. That's S-A-R-A-C-H-E-K lawfirm.com or at 646-403-9775. The proceeding is an attorney advertisement and past results are no guarantee of future performance. Okay, Sam, let's get started with you. There was, of course, the call-up of some 300,000 reservists on October 7th, many of them in the midst of their adult lives, in their 20s and 30s, some in their 40s, even into their 50s, and often with businesses that are struggling to survive as they continue serving and, in many cases, have really been in service for at least eight weeks with brief trips home. You've been covering that in the Knesset this week um, on the financial side, as well as issues regarding extending age. Let's start with the financial issue and what you heard as you covered this in the Knesset. Yeah, so earlier this week, uh, one reservist was testifying uh, in front of a committee on this issue, and he had said that he had been mobilized since day one. He packed up, went out, Without a second thought, as soon as uh, as soon as all of this started, and in the interim, he owned a uh, a grocery in Beersheba. His business essentially completely collapsed. Uh, he's completely financially devastated. He said his situation was a catastrophe, and that he was afraid to swipe his credit card to buy baby formula for his daughter. His fridge was empty, and he didn't receive anything. And a representative of the government asked him why he hadn't applied for special assistance because they have been giving emergency assistance reservists. And he said, basically, 
They took my phone when I went into Gaza. I was literally incommunicado. How do they expect reservists to request things, even if we're eligible for a special grant? How do they expect us to request this if we are in the middle of a war zone and we are banned from, from making phone calls? Now, since then, we have seen a, uh, an effort by the government to address that issue. Uh, Finance Minister Smotrich and Defense Minister Gallant presented a $9 billion shekel uh, wartime aid plan for reservists uh, this week on Tuesday, which includes uh, grants and subsidies to assist uh, reservists and their families. And this uh, should go a long way to helping uh, sort of fill those gaps and to supplement uh, money that had already been budgeted, uh, though it's still, compared to how much reservists are giving, it still sort of seems like it's not a lot. For instance, combat soldiers will be getting a uh, monthly uh, extra grant of $386, uh, non-combat soldiers $220. Uh, then there's going to be benefits for parents of children under 14. Reservist soldiers who serve more than 45 days will receive another grant of $689. Uh, and other things, and it adds up, but it's still compared to how much someone might be making from their, their day job, even on top of what they're making as a salary as a reservist, it's not always enough. Uh, and and the fact that these reservists were suffering so much uh, actually came up in uh, another context this week, which was when the uh, Knesset's Foreign Affairs and Defense Committee was set to vote on a uh, piece of legislation which would have extended the length of time IDF reservists are subject to mandatory service, meaning if your exemption age for service is 40 and after you're age 40, you don't have to do reserve service anymore, this bill said that it would be extended to age 41 because the army said we can't afford to lose soldiers as they age out of the reserves. There was this discussion going on in the Knesset this week, and we're hearing it now. In other words, that it's happening right now because of the fact that we're in the midst of a war and that there would be people who would age out literally right now and in theory could leave reserve service. Is that what we are understanding? Exactly. What would, what would essentially happen, and the fear from the army, is that in the middle of combat operations, you would have people who suddenly become exempt from service and will go to their officers and say, okay, I no longer have to be here. Now, I don't know how many people would actually do that because people obviously are very emotionally invested in uh, in the war following uh, the massacre on October 7th, but there's a worry that people would not come. So the army was, uh, was really supporting this bill. And what uh, Chairman uh, Edelstein of this committee basically said was, until there is comprehensive compensation set out for the reservists, there's no way we're going to extend their terms. Now, the aid package was announced within a day of him saying that and, and him refusing to allow the committee to hold a vote on the legislation. And so immediately after the uh, Smotrich and Gallant announced their, their aid package for the reservists, the uh, Foreign Affairs and Defense Committee then voted unanimously to allow the legislation to go back to the plenum for its second and third readings, which are necessary for it to become law. 
And literally within hours, the legislation made its way to the plenum, went through second and third readings. Uh, and the only difference from the original legislation is the original legislation said we want to extend the man, uh, the age of mandatory uh, reserve duty for a period of one year as a temporary measure. And what Edelstein said was, if we do this as a temporary measure for a year, there won't be enough budget to continue giving this supplemental money for the soldiers. So we're doing it for a period of two months. So for the next two months, the reservists are having, who are about to age out, are having their service extended. Wow. It's very intense for someone who is in that particular situation, which I'm sure all three of us can think of people that we know who are dealing with that right now. Was there anything, just as we sum this up, Sam, was there, and, you know, on the sidelines, what are the conversations that are going on? What are people actually saying as this is all going on over the days that you're covering it at the Knesset? Anything you can add to it? Yeah, well, look, I think that there's, uh, as you said, everybody really knows someone who is in the reserves right now. Everybody either has relatives or friends. Uh, I personally aged out of reserve service last year, and I did not get called back. Uh, but it's a very personal issue. So this is not just a, a political issue to people. You could tell from the way people were speaking in these committees that it wasn't just an issue of political grandstanding or point scoring or uh, you know, closely held ideology and values. It was really a personal issue to everyone involved. Uh, very much that, you know, you could tell that everybody knew someone who was in this situation and cared. Uh, you know, I have multiple friends who are in reserve duty right now. I have uh, two cousins in the Gaza Strip. Uh, this is not something where people are discussing it dispassionately. People... Emotions, even when people are speaking in a restrained manner, you can tell that emotions are seething just beneath the surface. Okay. Thanks for sharing that, Sam. I appreciate it. We're going to take a quick break. When we're back, Sue will talk to us about what's happening environmentally right now. The world we live in isn't perfect, but it doesn't get better on its own. That's where the work of activists comes in. Whether it's environmental justice, animal rights, or disability advocacy, there are people all around the world striving to make it a better place. That's where All About Change comes in. Host Jay Ruderman talks with activists about how they do what they do and what inspires them to keep going. Because activism is all about change. Listen to All About Change wherever you get your podcasts. Life goes on while war rages here, and including the COP28 climate conference that took place in Dubai, a very petroleum-rich country, which I'm sure made for some ironies in terms of what was discussed or what was decided. Tell us what the gist of the conference was this year. Fill us in. So first of all, for those who don't know, COP uh, stands for Conference of the Parties. The Emiratis declared this year's COP a victory because the final declaration mentioned fossil fuels for the first time. And this was the 28th annual COP. Now, the science tells us that if we don't keep average temperatures or temperature rises ideally within 1.5 degrees Celsius compared with pre-industrial times, that's 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit, we're likely to take the, pl the planet to places that might not be reversible. 
We know that the burning of fossil fuels is largely responsible for global warming. It creates a blanket around the earth that stops heat escaping, just like in a real greenhouse, hence the term greenhouse gases. But it took 28 years for the nations of the world to agree to name fossil fuels in a COP declaration. Now, as always, there was agonized discussion over the wording of that declaration. In the end, it called for moving away from coal, oil and gas, but not phasing it out during this decade, as many had hoped. And of course, it's full of loopholes. And the problem with COP is that agreements must be reached by consensus. So this year, there were 197 countries. For the second year running, it was held, as you correctly say, in a petro state, Dubai. Last year, it was in Egypt, but heavily manipulated by the Saudis from behind the scenes. And next year, it'll be in Azerbaijan, nearly all of whose exports are oil-based. Because of the war against Hamas, Israel's original plans for sending a delegation of a 1,000 to COP were reduced down to a couple of dozen officials. And I reported on a debriefing held for some of the senior environmental figures. And one of those was the government's chief environmental negotiator, Ayelet Rosen. She sits in on all the negotiations. And she said the success of COP really depends on your expectations. And she said the reason to attend COP these days was less for the negotiations and more for the meeting of civil society and people and companies providing solutions. And I totally get that. I couldn't make it this year, but I was at Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt and I was at Glasgow the year before. And when you've got tens of thousands of attendees, there's this massive amount of energy and dynamism and discussion and business deals and crucially determination and hope to meet the challenges. So it's not that one should stop going to COP, but one should be very clear on one's expectations. There was one good thing that came out of COP this year, and that's that every five years, uh, all nations must upgrade and make more ambitious their climate targets. And so there is a window in the coming year to put pressure on the government uh, to upgrade what are widely regarded as very, very unambitious climate targets. Okay. And in terms of coming home, what happens afterwards? Are we even looking at that right now? Or... Are we basically just going to give a grade to this government about how it has fared environmentally in 2023? What do you want to say about that? I, I always like the term that the late Queen Elizabeth used to use. She, she, One of her years, she said, was an annus horribilis. And this was a true annus horribilis for the environment. Now, Amit Bracha, who heads Adam Teva Vadin, which is a, a veteran organization that uses the law to press for environmental change, is a mild-mannered guy. But he speaks for a lot of people when he says this government is the worst the country has ever seen for the environment. And that's quite an an accusation. As we know, it's a very sectoral government where the balance of power is held by the pro-settler right and the ultra-orthodox. And it's funny, always strikes me as ironic that the settlement movement goes on and on about the importance of the land of Israel. But its representatives in government certainly don't seem to understand the first thing about the needs of the land of the land of Israel. Right from the start, at the beginning of the year, the government has consistently tried to weaken the Environmental Protection Ministry and to condition a whole load of environmental decisions on the economy or industry or the finance ministry. And the finance ministry, even though it's made up increasingly of young people who you'd expect to be more aware, just has zero awareness about these issues. It either doesn't understand or it doesn't want to understand a whole slew of pretty obvious things. So the most obvious is that environmental policy is good for public health and quality of life. We all know that electric cars are less polluting than diesel or gasoline ones. 
But the finance ministry is raising the taxes on the purchase of electric cars in January for the third year running. We're hugely behind most developed and possibly many developing countries when it comes to waste. We still bury 80% of it. And this leads to high emissions of methane, which is a catastrophic gas for global warming, and to the leaking of toxic materials into our groundwater, which we should be able to rely on to drink. So many of our, mel- uh, our wells have been closed because they're so poisoned. The finance ministry, led by Bezalel Smotrich of the far-right Religious Zionism Party, needs a lot of money now to rehabilitate the communities of the Gaza border after October the 7th. So he and the ministry want to practically empty a fund that the environment ministry wants to use to build new waste facilities. But on the other hand, the finance ministry has cancelled a tax on disposable plastic and attacks on sugary drinks because the ultra-Orthodox decided that these taxes were an attack on their way of life. As we all know, disposable plastic goes to landfill and eventually ends up in the sea. If you take energy, uh, the gener- energy generation contributes nearly half of our global warming gases. We're a country with more than 300 days of sunshine, yet we can't even reach the modest target of three, 30% renewables by 2030. We're only at 10% now. And according to the Environment Ministry, we might reach 12% by the end of the the decade. Last year, our global warming emissions grew faster than our population did. The states understood during this war, we've all understood, how vulnerable gas platforms are, right? We've got two platforms and a floating floating gas platform. And the government shut down Tamar, which provides 40% of our natural gas, because they knew it was at risk of being hit by a Hamas rocket. When you have solar energy, you've got thousands and millions of solar panels each producing. It makes sense for energy security because you can't wipe out, you know, you can't shut down the nation's uh, electricity so easily. But instead of moving ahead with solar energy, which is cheaper and cleaner than gas, the government's running a fourth competition for more gas exploration in the Mediterranean. And this is when the International Energy Agency is saying gas exploration has to stop now. We have no climate law. We have no carbon tax. Carbon tax could have generated plenty of money for the Treasury and helped Israeli exporters who will soon have to pay tax at the EU's border. The government's made dramatic cuts to the Environment Ministry's budget. It includes a cut of 200 million shekels that will largely affect programs to prepare the nation for the effects of climate change. And remember that we're heating twice, on average, twice as much as uh, the rest of the world. Um, But the finance ministry is asking for another 200 million now for the settlements on top of 300 million and got early this month. Just remember, climate change will still be here after the war ends. I I could go on, but you get the picture. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yes, in wartime, it is difficult, I would imagine, for the government to pay attention to these matters. Sue, thanks for spelling it out. Thank you, Sue, and thank you, Sam, for being on today's Daily Briefing. As always, good to be here with you, even in these times. And thanks for listening to the Times of Israel Daily Briefing. We will be back again for another installment tomorrow. This episode was produced by the Podwaves. If you have comments, please drop us a line at podcast at timesofisrael.com. Until next time, take care, be well, Shabbat Shalom.